Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay, ta-da! The voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We've got the latest news on books and authors. We're chatting to author Sally Emerson. And our topic of the week is silver. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Good morning, Julian. How are you today? I'm very well, Heather. I'm in the pink and how are you? Oh, very good indeed. (laughs) I'm I'm very well. And I've got to say, we've got a, a shout out we've got to do because last week we were in Oxford, weren't we? We were indeed, yes. And we spotted a brilliant bookshop. We did indeed. And it's called, which I think is really gay, it's called Gulp Fiction. Yes, it was brilliant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Gulp Fiction. And it's in um, the covered market in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's run by a very charming young man by the name of Oliver, I think. Yes, it name. was indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I loved it that you got a free cup of coffee with certain books. Yes. Yes. It was a good idea because what, because it's, it's a, it's a bookshop and a cafe. And, um, so what Oliver does he selects um i can't remember exactly was it six novels he had on display yes, yes. Uh, certainly selects a number of books and then he puts those on the table and and if, if you buy one of those six you will get a free cup of coffee uh which i thought was a good marketing ploy uh and he's very enthusiastic and very charming and you when, when we came in he was chatting to us and we were talking about the the booker shortlist and um we both bought a, um, a copy of the ones that we tipped that we thought yes, were going to be the winner absolutely the and uh, uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was an, a lovely shop, and it was really a, sort of an, an, an enterprising enterprise. It I was thought. so. Hello, hello, Oliver. He's uh, yeah, hello, to Oliver. Yes, yes, indeed. I don't. Uh, hopefully, he's listening, or we'll let him know, and he can catch up. But uh, do uh, if you are in Oxford, uh, do go and uh, visit him, and it's called Gulp fiction which in, i think is a very in, clever play in the covered the market yes. yes in the covered market so in oxford every week on turning pages we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favorite classics because of course great books aren't just on the bestseller list so if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books this is your program and thank you for listening As always, we've got a bumper-filled hour designed for you this week. Indeed, it's completely crammed. Uh, And Heather's been chatting to Sally Emerson about her latest book of short stories, which is called Perfect. And we'll be exploring the world of silver in books, which is our topic of the week. And to start the show, as usual, we've been scouring the papers to swinkle out interesting book news for you. Yeah, so let's just start with that quick roundup of the book stories that we've spotted in the news recently. And we want to share with you. Excuse me. A letter is to go on display at Jane Austen's home in Chawton in Hampshire, written when she was 20. She declares she was to flirt her last with the man who may have been her romantic model for pride and prejudice. The curator describes the the curator of Jane Austen's home describes the letter as really fun. It's written from the perspective of someone who's young, bright, young thing. 
And the man in question, of course, is Tom Lefroy, an Irish lawyer who briefly visited Hampshire and spent much time with Austen. He later confessed to having been in love with her, though Jane Austen does describe him as boyish. The letter is the oldest surviving one in her own hand and was written to her sister Cassandra over two days in January 1796. And shortly afterwards, she started writing Pride and Prejudice. I was just thinking, I wonder if if, if um, uh, her comment there uh, was um, at the time when she called boyish, which was maybe it was in those days reference to a toy boy. Who knows? Oh, <laughs> although he well, was older. He was older. Ah, was, right. it's, yes. it's a shame to think that that might have been her true love. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. I mean, it really is, 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 a, is, a, is a pity. Now, there's an interesting article, another interesting article in the press about a notebook that Ian Fleming kept, and his musings, if you will, on what it takes to be James Bond. Now, it offers some nuggets, uh, such as one must be beware of men with moustaches. Oh, I agree with that. (laughs) Do not waste time with a woman with a bracelet on her left ankle and never trust a politician. Well, that's no insight, is it? No. All of it is good advice, along with only talk secrets in the open air. Oh, and I then this that's yes, very espionage like, isn't it? It is, it is, yes indeed. And then and this is rather interesting, never eat scrambled eggs unless you have prepared them yourself. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Obviously, it must be something that maybe it was maybe it was a device that the Schmirsch agents would sort of do something to your scrambled eggs. Now, now many of the ideas could equally have been applied to the author, as they include a number of health suggestions, such as reduce smoking when your breath feels short and cut down on alcohol when your eyes get red. I see you've already sort of maxed out when those two things. <laughs> yes, I have. Yes, um, the notebook was uh, created by Fleming as an aid memoir whilst he was writing You Only Live Twice. And many of his ideas found their way into the book. Now, it seems to be as if it was written by an author for an author struggling with his health as Fleming was. Now, Fleming died at a very early age of 56. Gosh, that is young, isn't it? Very young, yes. And in fact, um, uh, You Only Live Twice was written after Fleming had had a heart attack. Um, Now, one of the ideas in the notebook was the statement, live until you're dead, which was, I think, indicative of how Fleming and James Bond were determined to get the most out of life. Oh, that's a great, a great way to live, isn't it? Live until you're dead. Yes, yes. Smoke your head off and drink um, (laughs) Vespa martinis till you're sick. Not quite, really. No. Right, on a totally different point, we're going down the medieval manuscript route now. So, and, 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 and become very pious. Oh, yes, I think, I, I think so. Very Absolutely. Pious, so the Lindisfarne Gospels have gone on tour and are now on display in Newcastle until the beginning of December, which, of course, probably is where they belong. They belong in the north. Well, they do. Up north. Up north. They're usually found in the British Library. And if you haven't seen them, well, you absolutely must. These spectacular manuscripts have survived from Anglo-Saxon England and uh, include the St Cuthbert Gospel, which is the oldest European book known. And uh, the news about their movement allowed newspapers to picture them in all their glory with their highly elaborate full-page carpet pages 
so-called because of their resemblance to carpets from the Eastern Mediterranean. And they did look absolutely amazing. Mm, in the, quite uh, quite yeah. sumptuous. Yeah, quite sumptuous. Now, whilst London may be uh, losing the Lindisfarne Gospels temporarily, another stunning piece of medieval paper goes on display at the Heritage Gallery in the Guildhall in London. And it is the William Charter, which was given by William the Conqueror to the City of London in 1067. Wow. Bearing in mind, you know, he came over in 1066, so he didn't waste time issuing the charter. Uh, and it's written in Old English on 15 centimetre wide vellum. And it is the oldest royal or imperial document to guarantee the rights of any town's inhabitants. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't mm. it? Right. So we're going from 1066, zapped right up to the modern day. Mm-hmm. With, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm just about to cough. Excuse me. Uh, Richard Osman is back in the bestseller charts with his latest book, The Bullet That Missed, which became the fastest selling fiction hardback event ever, which is pretty impressive. Mm. As you'll remember, Osman was in the bestsellers charts with his first two books, sort of, it felt like years. It was literally amazing. Mm, it was a really was. long run. And I was watching an interview with Osman on telly the other day, and it was with him and his mum, and they'd yeah, gone right. to the retirement home where she lives that inspires the series. Oh, um, right. And it was so lovely because, of course, you saw, um, if if you haven't read the Richard Osman um crime series you'll uh you'll have missed the fact that it's set in a retirement home and of course just because you're old it doesn't mean to say that you you're not intelligent and there's all no. these fabulous people who've got great who've had great jobs in the past and they're now sitting there wondering what to do so they decide to solve a crime and anyway it was so lovely meeting all the the ladies in the retirement home and his mum was talking about uh, to the interviewer and um, Richard uh, Osman asked her, ha- asked his mum who her favourite author was. And true to, true to normality, uh, mum, his mum claimed it was C.J. Sampson. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, so, mum. Yeah, exactly. So your son's this best-selling author. He's being interviewed on the television. <laughs> and his mum bigs up C.J. Sampson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, well, I've got, um, um, we're getting now a little into the past, um, uh, leaving Mr. Osman behind, but we're going to another um, uh, great writer, uh, which is um, a letter written by J.R.R. Tolkien, describing how he was stuck in a hole as he struggled to complete The Lord of the Rings. Um, and this letter has emerged after 77 years. Now, it was written in 1945, and it sheds light on the author's despair during a bout of writer's block about finishing the task that had already consumed seven years of his life. Now, the letter is part of a set of correspondence he had with two girls who were fans of The Hobbit. Tolkien said that they would probably be all grown up by the time he completed the trilogy. Now, this this and other letters are part of um, a collection of an American um, collector whose library is being sold through Christie's. Now, in addition to the first editions of Tolkien's work and other literary treasures, it also includes another letter to the girls explaining in great detail how he developed the language of dwarves and elves. And it's often described as the Rosetta Stone of Middle-earth. 
Now, the language uh, is based on historic Anglo-Saxon runes. Now, Tolkien was a professor of English literature and language at Oxford University, so I think he knew a, um, a thing or two about language. Yes, I think he did. Oh, how marvellous. That's a fantastic yes. letter. Yes. Series of and, and interesting the way he, you know, obviously the, the girls uh, seemed to be quite young, but he was, you know, chatting away in a letter to them and saying, yes. oh, gosh, well, you're going to be all grown up by the time I can get this finished, <laughs> if I get it, ever get it finished, you know. Well, thank goodness for English literature. Yes, he managed to, yes. he managed to do that, and, and for it, Mr. Jackson when he made the films. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, we can't finish this section without paying tribute to Hilary yes. Mantel, who sadly died at the age of just seventy. I know, it was, um, it was such a shock. It was, yes. and she was in the middle of writing. Yeah. another book so what was that will we ever yeah. get to see that i don't know mm. so mantel was the only british author to have won the booker prize twice with wolf hall and bring up the bodies which is which are both part of her magnificent trilogy <clears throat> imagining the life of thomas cromwell and made tudor history half familiar and half remembered from school days alive in front of our eyes. Have you read them, Jules? I haven't. No, oh, I must admit I haven't. Really yes, good. Yes, I mean, they're yes. weighty tomes, but they're Yeah, brilliant. no, I, I do I, I do recall these great bricks of books yeah. there. You know, that, yeah. yeah, but well worth it. So mm-hmm. Mantell is, is acclaimed by many as the greatest British writer of her generation. And in her memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, she tells how at the age of seven, she saw an apparition in the garden of the family home. And from then on, her life was one of communing with the ghosts. Mm. So she felt that the voices of Cromwell, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn spoke to her. And in an interview, she once said that once those voices begin, it's like having a radio on in the background uh, for 15 years, which is how long it took. Never mind, Tolkien did his trilogy yeah. in seven. It took <laughs> Hilary Mandel 15 years. And so, in effect, there was a, she was saying there was a point where you're living with these people and only them, which is just phenomenal. Mm. She, she, was, she was great. So in celebration of her writing, and to encourage you to go out and read one of her many books, here's a short extract from The Mirror and the Light, which is the final instalment of her uh, Wolf Hall trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just talking about Anne Boleyn being beheaded. The Mirror and the Light, London. May 1536. Once the Queen's head is severed, he walks away. A sharp pang of appetite reminds him that it is time for a second breakfast, or perhaps an early dinner. The morning circumstances are new, and there are no rules to guide us. The witnesses, who have knelt for the passing of the soul, stand up and put on their hats. Under the hats, their faces are stunned. But then he turns back to say a word of thanks to the executioner. The man has performed his office with style, and though the king is paying him well, it is important to reward good service with encouragement as well as a purse. Having once been a poor man, he knows this from experience. The small body lies on the scaffold where it has fallen. Belly down, hands outstretched, it swims in a pool of crimson, the blood seeping between the planks. The Frenchman, they had sent for the Calais executioner, had picked up the head, swaddled it in linen, then handed it to one of the veiled women, who had attended Anne in her last moments. He saw how, as she received the bundle, the woman shuddered from the nape of her neck to her feet. 
She held it fast, though, and the head is heavier than you may expect. Having been on a battlefield, he knows this from experience, too. The women have done well, and would have been proud of them. They will not let any man touch her. Palms out, they force back those who try to help them. They slide in the gore and stoop over the narrow carcass. He hears their indrawn breath as they lift what is left of her, holding her by her clothes. They are afraid the cloth will rip and their fingers touch her cooling flesh. Each of them sidesteps the cushion on which she knelt, now sodden with her blood. From the corner of his eye, he sees a presence flit away, a fugitive lean man in a leather jerkin. It is Francis Bryan, a nimble courtier, gone to tell Henry he is a free man. The officers of the tower have found, in lieu of a coffin, an arrow chest. The narrow body fits it, the woman who holds the head genuflect with her soaking parcel. As there is no other space, she fits it in the, by the corpse's feet. She stands up, crossing herself. The hands of the bystanders move in imitation, and his own hand moves, but then he checks himself and draws it into a loose fist. The women take their last look. They then step back, their hands held away from them so not as to soil their garments. One of Constable Kingston's men prophesied in towels, too late to be of use. These people are incredible, he said to the Frenchman. No coffin when they had days to prepare. They knew she was going to die. They were not in any doubt. But perhaps they were, Maitre Cremuel. No Frenchman can ever pronounce his name. Perhaps they were, for I believe the lady herself thought the king would send a messenger to stop it. Even as she mounted the steps, she was looking over her shoulder. Did you see? He was not thinking of her. His mind is entirely on his new bride. Alors, perhaps better luck this time, the Frenchman says. You must hope so. If I have to come back, I shall increase my fee. The man turns away and begins cleaning his sword. He does it lovingly, as if the weapon were his friend. Toledo Steel. He proffers it for admiration. We will have to go to Spaniards to get the blade like this. He, Cromwell, touches a finger of the metal. He would not guess to look at him now, but his father was a blacksmith. He has an affinity with iron, steel, with everything that is mined from the earth or forged, everything that is made molten or wrought or given the cutting edge. Now the spectators are moving away, courtiers and aldermen and city officials, knots of men in silk and gold chains, in the livery of the Tudors and in the insignia of the London guilds. Scores of witnesses, none of them sure of what they have seen, they understand that the Queen is dead, but is too quick to comprehend. She didn't suffer, Cromwell, Charles Brandon says. My Lord Suffolk, you may be satisfied she did. Oh, that's fantastic. You feel, you can mm. see those pictures <clears throat> in your mind, can't yes. you? Fantastic, really good. Very atmospheric. Yeah, absolutely. The voice of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think Beat comes next on the list. Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. And coming up, we'll be delving into books with silver as the theme. But first, let's listen to Heather interviewing the author, Sally Emerson. Yeah. Perfect is a book of short stories of the impossible. 
um, we're introduced to the eerie in a series of keen-eyed portraits of everyday life. Here's my conversation with her. Sally, hello. Thank you very much for joining me today. I was just finished your fabulous new book perfect so tell me a little bit about it well I began writing it I had these story ideas for a long time I've written six novels before so this isn't what I usually write is short stories but I had them in a little books file and they wouldn't go away you know I thought well short stories are difficult I don't think I should write them but they were there in the box file and I kept thinking about them and then I was going through a difficult period and I opened the box, and there they were, and they were all like fairies. None of them kind of died. Sometimes you have ideas, and yes. when you look at them again, you know, they don't exist. They've all gone quiet, and they're sitting in the corner. But these were all very much alive. So it was with great pleasure that I started writing them, and they kind of needed to be written. And what was so exciting about doing the short story, it's quite, a, it's quite challenging because it's like a TARDIS you have to put everything, it looks very small, but yes. it's big. And you're actually trying to make it into a, for me, I was trying to make it into a, almost a condensed novel. But I was also trying to have aspects of it that were fantasy and reality. So they start off ordinary enough and then something extraordinary happens. And I wanted them to be fiction, you know, I wanted it to be something that hadn't been written like that before. I wanted it to be unique, but it seems that people have liked them. And the fun of it is starting off with something ordinary, but then quickly getting a lot of suspense yes. and trying to get that pared down prose, the suspense, the twists, and then having an ending that nobody can guess. Yes. That was the real fun, to be able to make sure that the twist at the end just couldn't be guessed. Brilliant, um, yes. And I've, I enjoyed doing that as well. So there's quite a lot of craft in a short story, which is fun because, as I say, it was a difficult time. And the ideas were like good fairies. They came to look after me when I wanted to. Oh, and um, it was a magical, magical time to be writing them. And I like, in all my books, I have quite, there's, there's often a thriller element yes. and a love element. And they're usually about love and desire and menace as well. And these stories, I think, have have those qualities in them, whether it's the story of the, you know, the, the girl who receives a death certificate stated in the future. And she, and she has to go and try and save the people who have got these death certificates in the future who might die. I love the story about the, the lady that gets some tablets and they, and they, they make everything seem very erotic. <laughs> yes. Well, they're like the, that's called lust. I thought after the, the first one, which is, uh, which is more serious, and the, the second one is Dust, which is about a, a nice lady who's got her children and she's slightly fed up with life and she goes to a nice little health club, shop around the corner. And they, there's a very nice man there, it turns out his name is Robin, who gives her some supplements and tells her which order to take them in. And when she takes them, and then the first person she sees, almost like Titania in Midsummer Night's Dream, who also has somebody called Robin Puck, is Robin Goodfellow, of course. She sort of falls in love with the plumber, or anyway, is full of lust for the plumber. But then she stops herself doing anything because plumbers are so hard to find. The last <laughs> thing she wants to do is to wreck her relationship with this important man. And it goes on from that and exploring. She's also doing various translations of, you know, of Greek at the same time. So it's, it's 
it seems like, but it's also about how the gods play around with us all the time, you know, how, how the randomness of life is a theme throughout. But, but it was quite fun doing that. Absolutely. So where's your inspiration from? Well, I've used just inside my head. Uh, it's always, I've always written from an early age, and I always liked stories that are both interesting and engaging, but have a bit of something else. I like, I like books that take you into, a, into another world, but not completely. I want them grounded in reality. And then something strange happens. So another novel of mine, Firechild, is about a couple who are writing a diary. They don't know each other, but one's, one burns down buildings and the other one can make any, but he fall in love with her, with her smile. And they get together. This is going to be Spurmageddon for the world. It's very rooted in very ordinary places. And that's what I've tried to do with them. Um, with these stories that are all very different, of course. Yes, very, di- very different. The one I really love was The Couple, which is talking about antiquarian manuscripts and the, the images of the manuscripts just leap out at you in your descriptions. It was absolutely charming. Oh, so thank you very much. That means a lot to me because that one was the most ambitious, actually, because a lot of people haven't quite realised, but the characters, it's about a couple, and they're very charismatic figures, and somebody is researching his past who goes yes. and looks at antiquarian manuscripts, which I'm in love with. I mean, I, I love them. I actually did a course of the history of the book, and so I'm very enchanted by it. But he sees that this woman he happens to meet at the Getty is in the early manuscripts, pictures of her. So bit by bit, you come to realise, or you should come to realise, that these, this couple who are like almost, I don't know, Angelie Jolie, you know, that, that kind of couple, and he, she thinks at first they might be film stars, are actually good and evil. Yes. And they are married. You know, they are partners, and they fight all the time. And they've always been alive. That's why they're always in these early yes. portraits, one or the other of them. And he is kind of pretty evil, and she is good. But when they fight together, everything is kind of balanced. But if one gets in power, it sort of messes things up. So it was a way of exploring this, you know, very big subject in a way yes. that was fun and entertaining. Yes. It's my favourite, actually. Yeah. Oh, good, is it? I was going to yes. ask you which one your favourite is. Yes, yes, yes. So now you've written this series of short stories and you've obviously written very successful novels in the past. Will you go back to writing novels or do you think you've now found your genre? It's so lovely just diving into the short story. And, you know, keeping the reader guessing, just sort of playing with them, really. And the, the novel is a much longer, obviously a much longer activity. And sometimes it's not as much fun to write because it's, it's an ordeal. You know, you've got to write, you've got to climb up a whole mountain to do it. And you don't really know whether it's going to work until you get to the end. But it's a short story. If anything isn't working, you know, it's it's just like a little construction you've made out of this, that and the other. You can see it all in front of you. Yeah. As soon as it's boring, you know it's boring and you just stop. Whereas if you're in a novel, you could, you know, you're building up character and all, yes. all the rest of it. And also at the moment when people are so busy, sometimes when you remember a novel, you just remember the gist of it. Whereas with my short stories, I would maintain, you would remember the gist of that, and if it was, if each of those was a novel, which it could be, you'd only remember 
that kind of intense atmosphere, yes. the twists of the plot, where it's set, the characters. So I think you know, in this fast-paced age where we don't have much time, good short stories that pack a lot in, have plenty of reader teasing and surprises, are, are, are really very valuable for people. Yes, I think you're right, because people have less attention span, don't they? So short story is, is perfect for a journey. And also because they have to be entertained, you have to go straight into the plot, straight into the characters. You can't do a big build-up. So yes. people are immediately engaged. So if you're kind of thinking, oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to be bored with that, you're immediately engaged because you have to be. Or if you one you don't like, you could also move to another, like a yes. box of chocolates or something. So that is also an attraction of the short story, I think. Do you think there are any any stories here that you might want to develop or possibly talk again about their their lives at a different stage? I was interested in fairy tales as well. I mean, that's actually set, uh, which is about lodgers, a lodger who comes along to this very nice woman, middle aged woman's mm-hmm. house. And turns out that she's more and more menacing. And it has a fairy tale element to it. Wow. Hansel and Gretel almost in the house one or two people have mentioned. Well, I wasn't really thinking of that, but it does have that. And she, yes, she is quite menacing. I was reading an article just the other day about how people have to write CVs, 10-page CVs, to get flats nowadays. So yes. it's absolutely as you describe it in the book, isn't it? Yes, both the boy and the girl have to write these CVs and choose their colours. And what she's trying to do is to match them up and yes. she's got a plan for them and we don't know what the plan is it's something sinister we, th- we think yeah and let's so not that, give it could away, be, yeah. that could have been a, yeah i won't say what it is but that could easily be a film script because you've got the whole atmosphere and you've got a love story they've all got little love stories i like the death certificates one where the where she yes. receives this very nice girl who looks after a terrible father who has alzheimer's and is kind of almost rewarded by getting these certificates dated in the future so she tries to save these various people and you don't know who she's the two men and you don't know which one she's going to end up in a relationship with and i i thought that could easily be a um, interesting yes. tv program because it's because it's about a race or time to try and solve the mystery before and persuade them to not do whatever's going to cause their death. But also, who is she going to fall in love with? And it's about her heroism as well, the parameters of her character being found out. So that would be fun to do more with. Yeah, it's quite interesting how a lot of them are are love stories. But on the other hand, they're also quite dark and menacing in places. You've got that sort of juxtaposition between two different types of books, which is really intriguing. Yes, well, I think love stories can be quite menacing. I don't know about your experience of life, but mine is. It's not all sweetness and light, but actually, on the whole, maybe it's where I am in my life, but on the whole, things don't end too horribly. I mean, there is the darkness. And people have said that compared me to roles that are a feminist or feminine role dull. Yes. But actually, a lot less unpleasant in the end. They seem as if they're going to be, but they're not always. So I think they are kind of love stories and they are about menace and storms and drama and they have that fantasy and sometimes a gothic element. Yes. But they should make people feel good. They do. Because they do. (laughs) You start them and you want to finish that story. You say, oh, I can't go to sleep just yet. (laughs) Got to finish it. (laughs) I didn't always know how they were ending. If I know how it's going to end, I might give, too many clues away so i'm not always sure particularly in that the first one 
about the about the wife who wants to clone her husband, which is yes. very outrageous. But I didn't know exactly how it was going to end. You don't know whether the stakes of the father when when the son is born are going to be repeated yes. or not, and how they're going to be repeated. So trying to, to get the nuance of that was good fun. So but I, I think mean, people deserve to be entertained. Oh, they do that absolutely. Well, we're all after yeah. being entertained, aren't we? That's that's what we want. And certainly, those books are entertaining. They're absolutely fabulous. So let's just have a little bit at the start of Perfect, which is the first book in the uh, in in the in the series, and it's about a couple who consider cloning. Perfect. Oh, darling," said Portia, sitting on the arm of the sofa, her hand on Jack's neck. I thought getting pregnant would take weeks. Next month, it will be three years. Their drawing room overlooked a garden square in Primrose Hill with pastel-painted houses gathered around like elegant guests at a party. Both Portia and Jack were beautiful. Jack had a strong jaw, high cheekbones, and blue eyes with a laser intensity. Raised in Streatham, Portia's background had been rough though there was little sign of it in her refined voice and manner. She was ballerina thin in a black polar neck and a shining kingfisher blue skirt that fitted smoothly over her hips. Her pretty oval face was made up like a doll's, with scarlet lipstick, a porcelain complexion, and green eyes enhanced by coloured contact lenses. Portia helped run an international cosmetic company and thought nothing impossible. Jack ran a successful hedge fund. She thought he was overcautious. He knew how reckless he was. Outside, a miserable drizzle shaded the room in spite of the dazzle of its yellow velvet sofa. I have an idea. Uh, An indecent proposal, she said. She slipped beside him. He turned to her and she smiled to let him see the hopefulness, the eagerness. Oh, good, he said. I don't think you'll think it good. Don't tell me then. He began to get up, brushing down his jacket. She held on to his arm and gazed up at him. He noted she'd put in her contact lenses and her eyes looked particularly emerald and appealing. Portia also always thought about the end goal and then worked out the steps to make it happen. In this case, by exuding a Bambi-like innocence and sweetness. But it is good. I've been thinking about it. I've even made inquiries and I want to tell you that it is not as outrageous or as unlikely as it sounds. It can be done. Tell me, Portia, he said warily. IVF hasn't worked. My proposal is this. Say it. You know that certain animals have been cloned. He blinked, slowly crossed his arms, and stared inertly through their full-length windows and into the rain. The room weighed down on him. Jack... She had a lovely voice, clear and clean. That's out of the question, he said. He stood up and walked to the window. Where do we live somewhere where it doesn't rain so much, he said. She was beside him, holding his arm. He tried to shake her off, but she hung on. But don't you see, with the people we know, our good sense, we could make this child happen. And he would be you, as you could have been if your father hadn't died when you were young. The new child would have everything, all the love, all the security in the world, your second chance. Entirely out of the question, Portia, he said. Even if it were possible, which it isn't, it is a monstrous idea. 
It was a real delight chatting with uh, Sally Emerson this week and her book is fantastic. I enjoyed all of the short stories within there. So Perfect is published by Quadrant Books and is available in all good bookshops and is thoroughly recommended. A series of short stories, everyone has got a twist in the tale. Indeed, indeed. And to our listeners, just to apologise for the quality of the interview, I think it, we're not quite sure what went wrong with that recording. There seemed to be some little like hiccup pauses, um, but uh, the author's reading seemed to come out all right. So we are sorry about that. Yes. Anyway, this is Turning Pages on River Radio, your book programme, and thank you for turning in. If you've only just joined us, we have missed you, but never fear, you can listen to our podcast from whichever service you use. You simply have to search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast and listen whenever and wherever you like. Now, River Radio offers a range of programmes all through the week, including music and talk shows, as well as culture such as your favourite Turning Pages. So make Turning Pages your regular radio date we're on every wednesday between 11 a.m and 12 noon and now we've come to the part of the show where we pick a theme and the theme this week is silver now we've discussed gold in the past haven't we we have we have and we managed to review i think two books that didn't have gold bullion at its base but this week with the topic of silver we've both gone down that line um perhaps it's the financial market at the moment that's playing at us subliminally i don't know it could well be yeah although i've got to say that my book isn't financial book at all in any shape or form it's a historical fiction adventure that's uh, that's my that's my point so julian tell us about the book you found for us Well, my choice this week is something of a favourite of mine, uh, in part because it's the subject of a really, really excellent film of the same name. And the book is Silver Bears, written by a former banker by the name of Paul Emil Erdman, whose experiences, including spending 10 months in a Swiss prison, inspired the book. So can I ask, is it fiction or non-fiction? Yeah, uh, (laughs) Oh, okay. Don't don't tell me. Tell me at the end then. Okay, right. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Um, The story opens in Las Vegas, where uh, there's a a British financial wizard by the name of Doc Fletcher, who hatches a plan to acquire a bank where his American mobster boss, Joe Fiore, can easily launder his ill-gotten gains. Mm -hmm. Now, after some initial objections, the mobster boss gives his blessing to the plan and Doc Fletcher goes off to Switzerland, to Lugano, to buy a bank that is up for sale. Now, he takes along the hoodlum's son, Albert, and... uh, a master forger, Melvin, which, of course, later in the story isn't such a good idea. Um, There they're joined um, by an impoverished Italian prince going by the grand name of Prince Gianfranco di Siracusa, who's agreed to act as chairman of the board to give the whole scheme an air of respectability. Now, when they arrive in Lugano, to Doc's horror, the bank is a shabby office above a pizza parlour. And own and only has a few hundred pounds. Uh, sorry, few 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 hundred dollars in assets, uh, and it's not one of the swanky banks that are lining the the main streets of the city. However, Prince Gianfranco is quick to point out that what they bought was not a shabby office above a pizza parlor, but a most cherished document—a banking license from the Swiss ah, banking okay. commission. 
which, as the prince goes on to say, would not normally be available to such gentlemen of your activities. <laughs> Put him in his place. And the prince suggests um, investing in a silver mine, which uh, recently discovered um, silver in Iran um, by his distant cousin, uh, the Aga Fadawzi and his sister Shireen. The mine is said to contain $1 billion worth of untapped silver. So all of this is going on, uh, uh, but in London, at the London Metal Exchange, Charlie Cook, who's one of the, uh, well, is the richest silver trader in the world, is concerned at the drop of uh, of the price of silver brought about by the Fadowsi silver starting to arrive on the market. Mm-hmm. Cook quickly finds out that a small bank in Lugano is financing the operation, and he decides the best way to stop the slide in the price is to take over the bank and close down the mine. Mm-hmm. So he uh, gets in touch with the president of the First National Bank of California, who agrees to the plan and sends one of his accountants, Donald Luckman, to Lugano to meet Doc and the Prince. Now, suspicion upon suspicion mounts after Luckman makes an initial approach and then comes back with an offer to buy the bank for $60 million. Doc, having found out from Luckman's wife what and who is behind the offer, turns it down only to be told by Joe Fiore to take it. Right. So after a while, of course, Doc is is is, is really upset because he's built this up because I think they started it with a couple of million dollars or something like that. So so he's really upset. So he, he dashes off to Los Angeles to fight to keep the bank, and Fiore gives Doc two weeks to secure his own funding to buy the bank off. The mobster, so he's got to he's got to find sixty million right. dollars. Yeah. Um, so this is not the end of the story, as you can imagine. Uh, the almost legitimate enterprise soon incorporates the schemes of a billionaire speculator living in London, the hustles of a pair of silver smugglers running an illicit operation out of Dubai, whose scam could topple the international monetary system. Fraud is at the very heart of the book, and the question is, who will go to jail? Well. Find out. You'll simply have to read the book. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. It, it, it does. Now, in part, the, your, your question, um, whether it's fact or fiction, well, uh, to give you a background, the author, Paul Emil Erdman, um, found himself in a very, very similar position. He was the fa- he was American, as I said. He was the founder and president of the Salic Bank in Basel. And in 1969, the first interstate bank corps of America uh, so think back to the the link of the the first National Bank of California. Yeah. So this is the first bank and uh, uh, state bank court of America bought a majority stake and renamed the bank the United California Bank in Basel. It collapsed spectacularly after making substantial losses speculating in the cocoa market. Now, Erdman and other board members were arrested and accused of fraud and mismanagement. Right. Now, Erdman was slung into jail, and after 10 months of solitary confinement without charge, Erdman was released on bail, but looking ahead, yeah. he decided to skip bail, fled to London, and then back to, to America. And Erdman was then convicted and given nine years um, a prison sentence in absentia. So presumably America and Switzerland don't have an extradition 
link? Well, as 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 we know from numerous uh, cases, not least with the the current one about that American woman. Oh yes, Galuzzi. Where yes. America, regardless of the fact that Britain's supposed to be our friend, and then just decided yes. that she's got diplomatic immunity and won't send her back. So that doesn't surprise me at all. No. So America will expect every other country to send people to them, but they won't send their citizens back. Now, the film that I have to say, I must mention the film, is one of my favourite Oh, and I've got to say, it sounds really good. It, and it really is. It's fantastic. Because actually the film is quite humorous. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's not a heavy way. And it really is good. And and, and particularly because, because Michael play, Michael Caine plays Doc um, Fletcher and Louis Jordan plays uh, Prince Gianfranco de Syracuse. And there's a wonderful scene where everybody thinks he's he's wealthy and um, yeah. they go to the... They, they've fallen out basically over this pizza parlor, you know, the right. office of the pizza yeah. parlor. So he goes, they go to his palace and then he's sitting in this huge room with practically no furniture. He's just in front of a fire and he's listening to, to opera and he's conducting the opera. So anyway, Doc and, uh, Doc and Albert and Marvin come to apologize and they said, okay, fine, we're coming. And then he, he goes, he goes to pick up a chair, which is one of those gilt frame mm-hmm. chairs, uh, you know, that you have in ballrooms. Yes, yes. And Doc Martin goes to take it from him, thinking that's for them to say, when in fact, Jan Franke goes and smashes it and throws it on the fire because that basically <laughs> is And it's really quite a touching scene, but it's absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, Stephanie Audran, the London Stephanie Audran plays um, Shireen Fadows and David Warner plays her brother. And the other characters uh, in there, uh, the other actors include Charles Gray, who plays... Um, um, uh, Charlie Cook, and then Joss Ackland plays the president of the American Bank. But also what is really, really interesting in this, it's really fun, I think, so. a very, very young Jay Leno. Oh, wow. Plays, yes, plays Albert uh, and uh, the hoodlum. And uh, and his, uh, his, his father, Joe Fiore, is played by the very, very good American actor, Martin Balsam. It's really worth watching <laughs> and it's fantastic um in fact actually so it's, it's being screened i can't remember now if it's on it might if anybody i think it might actually be on Britbox. Oh, okay um, it might be and it really is it, it, it's a fantastic film it really is great it's i really love it it's, it's, it's a good film and the, and the book itself is, is good so and i because i i think it, it is based on when he was in prison i think this is it, thinking because uh, edmund did write about seven or eight um books um uh, novels on 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 finance but this was his second and and all uh, his books are fiction or non-fiction uh, 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 uh fiction uh i believe that i believe they're fiction right um, yeah Gosh. but this one is yeah based on on and you could tell Obviously, because I know I was yeah. uh, the spoiler alert, but at the end of the film, you could see the link exactly. I mean, it, it, it's a mirror. Yeah. What a, it's a super, it's a super film. What it's a amazing. life! What a oh, life! And, and Sybil Shepherd, I forgot. Sybil Shepherd plays oh. Luckman's wife. Right. So she's, it's really good, a fantastic cast. Yeah. It, really good. it sounds fantastic. And the film was actually released in 1977, so it's 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 quite a vintage, but it's well worth watching. So my book's also got a film attached. And Ooh. it's one of my favourite books. It's The Silver Pigs by Lindsay Davis. But I didn't know it had a film attached until I did the research for this ah, book. So yes. I have got a treat in store. Um, although I've no idea how good the film is. I've got to say the advert looked a bit dodgy. It, <laughs> was, uh, it was made in 1993, possibly not All the right. finest year for <laughs> films. But uh, anyway, we'll have to, we'll have to say I had no idea. I didn't know any of the actors. <laughs> <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, so, so maybe it's a low budget version, yes, perhaps. Possibly, but, it, could, it could well be a gem. It could be. It got six point three out of ten. You know when they sort of do oh, the. Well. Oh, you think that's good? Oh, I thought no, that I was a bit low. So anyway, a film <clears throat> is called An Age of Reason. Why they didn't call it The Silver Pigs, Silver Pig, yeah. I have absolutely no idea. Hmm. Um, but it is the first novel in the best-selling historical detective series featuring Marco Didius Falco, ah, exposing yes. the criminal underbelly of ancient Rome. Now, Lindsay Davis has done 20 novels mm. featuring Falco. Now, he's the sort of like the laid-back Roman informer who investigates crimes and acts as an often reluctant imperial agent. And he narrates his adventures in the first person. And the books are written with that sort of same dry humour as an American gumshoe novel and written with that same unerring eye for historical detail. So you sort of get the feel that Falco is um, ancient Rome's answers to Philip Marlowe. You know, that sort mm, of... Yes. I yes, was sitting yeah, in yeah, the... Yeah. Yeah. I understand that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So in the course of the whole series, he acquires a wife, uh, some children, dog, obviously there's loads of friends and antagonists. But um, many people like to read the whole series in chronological order. Certainly my father did. And hmm. uh, that, that meant that we've now got the full, the full series. And uh, if you do that, of course, you can see the, kind of the background plots yeah. develop and starting with the arrival of, in Rome of the Empress Vespasian in 69 AD and ending with Nemesis set in 77 AD. But you can read, read each book individually. And hmm. uh, I certainly just now and again just pick one out as a bit of light uh, a light relief so this plot for this book starts with marco sidious falco standing in the forum one hot day in 70 ad and lindsay davis this is her description of the book so this is lindsay davis at this early point in his career falco has not only to make his way in the snobbish and dangerous milieu of vespasian's rome but to overcome the prejudiced among publishers booksellers and readers who are wary of historical novels and offbeat settings our hero takes himself to Britain. There the weather is filthy, the natives are restless, the women are angry, and his mission turns into a nightmare from which he only narrowly escapes alive. Along the way, he meets brutes, traitors, his mother, sellers of seedy snacks, a blonde young lady who thinks he's wonderful, the emperor, and Helena Justina, whom the author had intended to be the chief conspirator, but who turned out to be far too spirited for that. And Helen Justinia be, does become Falco's wife in the end. Ah, right. And, uh, and then, Spoiler uh, alert. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Davis adds, this is the one with the bath will never have anything made of it joke <laughs> in it. So obviously they're just starting to build the... <laughs> A swimming pool and bath. Yeah, you can see, I can see this. Oh, these new towns, they'll never catch on. Exactly. <laughs> now, a silver pig, if anyone's wondering what a silver pig is, it's the byproduct of the lead mining industry. So ah. basically, you would make these ingots. That's how an ingot is basically a pig. And the Romans, of course, uh, one of the chief attractions of Britain for the Romans was that uh, the silver deposits that we had ah. in Somerset, Flintshire, 
Really? Oh, yes. Gosh. And of course, Wales has gold, of course. Well, it does have well, its gold, yes. Yeah. Yes, which yes, normally makes um, is used to make a royal uh, wedding ring. That's right, it? yeah. Yes. And, uh, and in Derbyshire, we've also got silver silver mines, or had mm-hmm. silver mines had. In, in Derbyshire that the um, Romans exploited. So that's absolutely... She's gosh, done that's a, very she's interesting. She's done her homework. Yeah. See, you learn so much on oh, uh, turning pages, don't you? Absolutely. Ah. Right, I've got a little bit of recording. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So let's listen to the very first bit of uh, Silver Pigs by Lindsay Davis. When the girl came rushing up the steps, I decided she was wearing far too many clothes. It was late summer. Rome frizzled like a pancake on a griddle plate. People unlaced their shoes, but had to keep them on. Not even an elephant could cross the streets unshod. People flopped on stools in shadow doorways, bare knees apart, naked to the waist. And in the back streets of the Aventine sector where I lived, that was just the women. I was standing in the forum. She was running. She looked overdressed and dangerously hot, but sunstroke or suffocation had not yet finished her off. She was shining and sticky as a glazed pastry plait. And when she hurtled up the steps of the Temple of Saturn straight towards me, I made no attempt to move aside. She missed me, just. Some men are born lucky, as are called Didius Falco. Excuse me, she gasped. Excuse me. She veered round me. I sidestepped politely. She dodged. I dodged. I'd come to the forum to visit my banker. I felt glum. I greeted this smouldering apparition with the keenness of a man who needs troubles taken off his mind. She was a slight thing. I liked them tall, but I was prepared to compromise. She was wickedly young. At the time, I lusted after older women, but this one would grow up, and I could certainly wait. While we sashayed on the steps, she glanced back, panic-struck. I admired her shapely shoulder, then squinted over it myself. Then I had a shock. There were two of them. Two ugly lumps of gel fodder, jelly-brained and broad as they were high, were pushing through the clouds towards her, just ten paces off. The little gas was obviously terrified. Get out of my way, she pleaded. I wondered what to do. Manners, I chided thoughtfully, as the jelly-brains came within of places. Get out of my way, sir, she roared. She was perfect. It was a usual scene in the forum. We had the record office in Capitol Hill, hard above us on the left. To the right, the courts, and the Temple of Castor further down the sacred way. Opposite, beyond the white marble rostrum, stood the Senate House. All the porticos were crammed with butchers and bankers, all the open spaces filled with sweaty crowds, mainly men. The piazza rang with the curses of strings of slaves, crisscrossing like a badly organised military display. The air simmered with the Greek of garlic and hair pomade. The girl pranced to one side. I slid the same way. Need directions, young lady? I asked helpfully. She was too desperate to pretend. I need a district magistrate. Three paces, options running fast out. Her face changed. Oh, help me. My pleasure. I took charge. I hooked her away by one arm as the first of the jelly brains lunged. Close to, they looked even larger, and the forum was not an area where I could count on any support. I planted the sole of my boot on the first thug's breastbone, then vigorously straightened my knee. I felt my leg crunch, but the draft ox staggered into his evil friend, so they teetered backwards like faltering acrobats. I looked around frantically for a diversion to cause. The steps were crowded with the usual illegal touts and overpriced market stalls. I considered upending some melons, but smashed fruit meant a diminished livelihood for their market gardener. 
I had a diminished livelihood myself. So I settled on the tasteful copperware. Tilting it with my shoulder, I keeled over a pleat stool. The stallholder's thin cry was lost as bouncing flagons, ewens and urns sped at a denting pace down the temple steps, followed by their despairing owner and numbers of righteous passers-by, all hoping to stroll home with a nice new fluted fruit bow under one arm. Yes, what a great scene that is. Um, needless to say, um, Didier Falco will come to the rescue and sort this little, this girl out. So Davis is, of course, a Roman aficionado. And she still writes books in this period. And now the lead, door, lead character now is Falco's daughter, Flavia Alba. Uh, I've not read any of those books but I did buy one the other day so I'm looking forward to reading that mm. uh, 2022 sees the 10th of the Flavia Albia uh, books and it's the 30th anniversary of the extended series um, so um, mm. Lindsay Davis is still writing strong after 30 years you know J.R.R. Tolkien after seven it's just you know He's not uh, not up to it, obviously. And uh, Lindsay Davis also does talks and walks um, around Roman uh, Roman Britain, which is uh, I always mean to go on one of these, where she sort of goes round places that Falco might have visited. And uh, there's a travel company called Andante Travel that uh, that put on these tours. So I always think that's a great idea. Mm. So anyway, so Silver Pigs has been made into this film called The Age of Reason. And there's also a rumour that these books are going to be adapted for television. And I just think that is be a brilliant idea. Mm, that would be good. Yeah, so it's originally been pitched to the BBC. And I understand that ITV are currently pursuing the project. Um, so no date. Yeah, so watch this space. Now, can I just say in defense of, um, of, of Tolkien, I think he got stuck after seven years. Ah, yes. um, he didn't complete everything in seven years. He got stuck after ah, seven years. Okay. So, yes, there, there we go. <laughs> now, we're on to something a little bit more, a, bit, a bit new and in the medical world. Adam Kay's new book, Undoctored, has just been published and has already taken the top spot in the bestsellers chart for non-fiction hardback books. And it's a big shoes to fill because Kay's first book, This Is Going to Hurt, spent 30 weeks in the hardback list and a further 140 weeks in the paperback list. Wow, that's a huge amount of time in the mm-hmm. bestseller list. Well, we indeed. certainly wish him well with that new book. We do. So we other do. books in the bestselling list this week include The Ink Black Heart, which is Robert Galbraith's latest in the Cormoran Strike Robin Ellicott private detective series. Now, mm-hmm. I've got to say, Robert Galbraith Galbraith, of course, is J.K. Rowling in disguise. Of course, And I must admit, I love these books. But this one comes in at a hefty 1,000 pages plus. So it's sitting there on my bookshelf and I'm plucking up courage to start it. Well, just think that's a wonderful book to have because when the electricity goes out, you can sit there with your candle reading (laughs) your 1,000 page book. Yes, I know. It's a nightmare. (laughs) <laughs> but I do remember her last book was 760 pages. And, oh. But when I started it, of oh, course, a short novel, you, was it? Yeah. But as soon as you start it, you obviously, you want to finish it because it's so good. But it's just the thought of starting it that's, that's know, a bit I know, I know. I think that's it. Once you get one of those books and then you start going through. And then at the end of it, you say, crikey, well, why did it have to end? You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. 
<laughs> now, um, uh, the books we've been re- re- recommending today are... So, Richard Osman, The Bullet That Missed, published by Penguin. You Only Live Twice by Ian Fleming, published by Vintage Classics. Hilary Mantel, Wolf Hall, published by Fourth Estate. Perfect by Sally Emerson, published by Quadrant Books. The Silver Pigs by Lindsay Davis, published by Arrow. And Silver Bears by Paul Erd, uh, Emil Erdman, published by Dover Publications. So thank you very much for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. We've really enjoyed your company and thank you very much. And do tell all your friends. And if, don't forget that if you can catch up on past programmes, you can listen again either from our website or search Turning Pages on River Radio podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Paperback writer